Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to Hidden History Happy Hour. As you know, listeners, we have devoted much of two recent episodes now to Putin's horror unfolding in Ukraine this winter and spring of 2022. However, there is a few other things going on in the world. And Alex, lest we forget, there is a pandemic on, though it's seemingly waning as we record this, but it's not anywhere close to being gone from the earth. And we're most fortunate today to have with us the world's expert on what remains, or perhaps what is debatable uh, at this point, the deadliest pandemic in history, the great influenza of 1918-19. John Barry is not only the unrivaled historian of that pandemic and has been the go-to expert on this current COVID-19 pandemic on television, in the New York Times and elsewhere, but John, I am proud to say, is a colleague in a nonprofit I started at the beginning of COVID-19, and I dare say, a friend. Welcome, John Barry. Uh, thanks. Good to be here. and Welcome, John. Anyway, I don't know about the expert, but whatever. Thank you for the introduction. I, even I can see that's great modesty. John, have, great to have you with us. Uh, yeah. False modesty. False modesty. <laughs> well, that's, that's the best kind. We, we, Good man. we live on that in this podcast. That's our special kind. Right. Well, listeners, as I mentioned, John Barry is the author of The Deadliest Pandemic in History, The Great Influenza of 1918 and 1919. It'll be in the show notes. Please get it. It's a great read as well as very relevant to the world today. And John, your book provides a great and very accessible to a scientific dunce like me, history of the development of science as applied to medicine. In addition to being a great history of the pandemic, Alex is going to tell us about what may be the earliest significant clinical trials, and we'll be very curious to get your thoughts on whether that's true. Over to you, Alex. Thank you very much. Um, this is a story that I, um, I confess now that enough time has passed. I have from the, the vaccines minister at the time in the United Kingdom, Lord Bethel, who very proudly told me about it um, as the UK was um, seeking to and doing our best to lead the way, or at least you know, do the best we could in vaccinating our population. Uh, and um, the story I want to tell is the story of James Lind, who was the British naval surgeon who pioneered what we claim, uh, at least gentlemen, to be the first clinical trials that were conducted. And it was on board HMS Salisbury on the 20th of May 1747. So a very specific date they kicked off. And those times, as you will appreciate, scurvy was a huge threat um, for uh, navies around the world. Indeed, scurvy caused more deaths amongst British sailors uh, than the French and Spanish forces combined that we were fighting. So we now know, of course, that scurvy is caused by vitamin C deficiency, but vitamins were in 1747 quite unknown. And Lind thought that scurvy was caused by what they called putrefaction of the body, and that that putrefaction could potentially be cured through the introduction of acids. He therefore recruited, I don't want to probe the extent to which they were really volunteers, a, a dozen <laughs> men. Yeah, so he, he, he made sure he had a dozen guys with scurvy uh, for what he called a fair test. And the fair test wasn't, you know, they didn't call it clinical trials then, but that was what he was aiming for. I, by the way, I don't 
pretend that it might satisfy modern day requirements of quite what a clinical trial would look like either. And it definitely was, didn't constitute informed consent. But anyway, without telling them who was getting what, hence, you know, blind groups, he allocated two men each to each of six different daily treatments um, for a fortnight. And hold on to your hats, guys. The six treatments they got were, first group, 1.1 litres of cider. This is a group that did not complain about their allocation. This would be hard. This, Alex, am I right? This would be hard cider. That is hard cider, 1.1 liters a day uh, that you were obliged to consume as a sailor in the interest of science. I like it. Uh, yeah, the second group, not quite so lucky. 25 milliliters of dilute sulfuric acid. Oof. Yeah, that's, that's probably not the group I'd have chosen. Um, third group, 18 milliliters of vinegar three times a day. Fourth group, half a pint of seawater, which mm. just sounds absolutely horrible, doesn't it, to think about. You know, imagine day 13, 14 rolling around. You know, you've got to get another half pint of seawater down you. It would seem um, like that might create a few other problems. You might think. Group five got two oranges and a lemon uh, <laughs> each, each day. Uh, and by the way, that didn't last the whole two weeks because supplies ran out. Uh, and group six, which I, I think probably he thought was where some of his interest might come from. Group six got this paste of garlic and mustard seed and radish root and what, what was called gum. Maybe you know what that is and I don't. But anyway, so those are the four. Those are the six groups. And as you will have guessed, those who got the citrus groups, uh, citrus fruits, experienced the most sudden and good visible effects, even though they ran out of fruit. Mm -hmm. One of the sailors who was in that group was fit for duty afterwards and the other one was basically almost recovered and of course the others were were in no great shape times five in their groups uh, and the point is it took time for those lessons to be accepted but in due course lemon juice and lime juice hello from a limey lemon <laughs> juice and lime juice were issued routinely to all sailors in the british fleet and Lind is recognized as the man in my country, as the, as the man who pioneered uh, comparing like with like and like with unlike. And his trials design informed what happened in our country uh, and developed into clinical trials. So um, it's a record that we're proud of. Well, I can't wait to hear from John about this, Alex, but I also can't help but asking, I can't help but ask, given the nature of our podcast, did the Requirement to have citrus lead to any developments on, say, the alcoholic ration front for the British Navy? <laughs> you, you will find a way to ask that question in every podcast. I don't know. I don't think they were putting citrus in their gin, although that would have been ahead of its time. And in fact, is what I'm drinking in honor of the uh, citrus. Uh, I, don't, I should ask you guys what you're drinking, but I'm having uh, gin and tonic, um, gin for Plymouth's gin navy for the, for the navy, and uh, the citrus in it is obvious. And um, I, I don't think it informed that, John, but I, uh, I'm Brian, but I would like to think that it uh, didn't detract from uh, the importance of drinking alcohol in our navy. Well, I want to circle back to that after John leaves. But John, what, what do you think about this uh, quote unquote clinical trial on Salisbury? Well, I. The, um, the Brits were, were pretty good. I mean, leadership and the development of scientific medicine passed from one country to another. Uh, Scotland in the uh, 1700s and, and maybe a little bit very late 1600s was really a pretty good place. Right. Uh, True. Then you have, you know, the... the uh, experience you just detail and of course john snow with cholera yes uh, so yeah the brits have 
what I need to be proud of. When you uh, guys are in London one day, we will go to the Jon Snow pub, which is down the street from the pump uh, that, that caused the cholera investigation that Jon Snow carried out. Well, I was about to mention, Alex, and I don't know if this will inform our listeners on the way you and I roll when we're overseas, but I was going to mention you've already taken me there. Uh, I've been nice to our guest. <laughs> John is going to come. But John, if you have not been, it's it's worth a pint there just to experience it. But <clears throat> John, uh, one of the very pleasant surprises about your book is the degree to which it's not only a, a history of the pandemic, but also kind of a history and even a meditation on the evolution of science and medicine in the United States and Europe. And when you begin your story, all the action really was in Germany, France, and I guess possibly the UK, right? Right. I mean, for roughly 2,000 years, uh, logic had driven medical practice. And logic in and of itself, I mean, that's only a tool. Uh, that's why they were still bleeding patients as a treatment in the 1800s. Right. Uh, then the French started correlating treatments with outcomes and realized it didn't make any sense. Uh, that was in the early 1800s. Um, there is actually, I don't want to spend all our time as to why logic suggested uh, that bleeding would work. You know, they had the theory about humors and that phrase remains uh, right. alive humoral immunity. Uh, but there was a lot of conditions that bleeding actually relieved some symptoms and, and people tended to quite often would feel somewhat euphoric after, after being bled. Anyway, one of my favorite lines of my own in the book was that, you know, something to the effect of, if you don't test your hypothesis in science, progress is coincidental yeah if you do test your hypothesis it's inevitable hmm. yeah uh, I, I i somewhat you know take uh a exception to this idea uh you know that that there are mindsets that freeze things it's no it's you know progress moves sort of like an amoeba you get you know a little part of the body moves in one direction and then sort of the whole body shifts. But all of that comes because of hypotheses being tested. Uh, not because that there was some lock set that uh, in your mind was frozen and then suddenly shifted. That's why your mind shifts. Yeah. And John, a number of scientists that I greatly respect, including Alex, a couple at one of the companies we work with, have said to me that, in their opinion, a true scientist always has the mindset that they are going to be inevitably and constantly wrong. And that whatever they're concluding in 2022 likely will be overturned or augmented or changed in 10, 20, 50, 100 years. And that's fine. That's the nature of the beast. You have to just go with that if you're going to be in, in, in experimental science. I agree with that. Yeah. Again, this idea that paradigms control things, I, they do and they don't. I mean, it, you know, much more important, as I just was saying, is the, you know, running experiments, testing 
what you're thinking and uh, and moving forward. That's that's what creates a paradigm shift. And, and you've been on, you've done you, sorry you've done so much um, media in the course of, of this pandemic and you've got so many insights about it. Has this pandemic that we've endured and gone through the, the COVID time, it, has that been a paradigm shift in um, in the nature of, uh, of of transmission because we're so much more mobile as a population, or, or is COVID actually? another iteration of something i'm not comparing it directly to the the flu but is it another iteration of things that visits mankind from time to time and you know nothing in the world is is new is it or something in between those no i would say it's nothing in the world is new right you know a, a lot of people have talked about you know worldwide spread and airplanes and so forth and yes that's absolutely true that things move more quickly now in a matter of hours, but you had pandemics moving worldwide before air travel, and for that matter, before steam travel. Uh, When it took weeks to cross the ocean, you still had influenza pandemics moving from Europe to the Americas. And, you know, it wasn't as deadly to the Native Americans as smallpox. but it was pretty deadly because when you get a virus in a virgin population, one that has never seen that virus before, uh, it is much deadlier than it is in a population that has been exposed to it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're always going to get some cross protection. And, and to that, to that exact point, John, it's been suggested to me that there likely are remains of Neanderthals in the Arctic ice cap that contain potentially viruses and bacteria and toxins that no human has encountered for 80,000 years. And that if those bodies thaw out and we're not careful, COVID-19 will look like a lame dress rehearsal. What do you think about that theory? Well, I think it's reasonable that there were pathogens that infected uh, people or Neanderthals, cousins uh, that that are not around today, but I'm not particularly concerned that thawing a body out would release a pathogen that was capable of infecting us. You think the 80,000 years of being frozen probably killed it? Well, remember, they're not alive. But yeah, I mean, most viruses are pretty, uh, pretty fragile. Well, that's good. I'm not withdrawing my screenplay idea based on that. From no, you. it sounded like a good pitch. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. As we are, I, 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 Brian has opened the the levees on how absurd we can be asking an expert question. So Fair. I'm gonna I'm gonna not feel too dumb asking mine, which is watching from outside your country, John and Brian. I was surprised by the position taken um, by uh, Dr. Fauci, who who argued at one point that. If you disagreed with him or if you attacked him, even not that I'm saying anyone should attack him in any way, but if people attacked him, uh, then they were attacking science. And it seemed to me that identification of the discipline with the man was quite antithetical to the position you which with which I agree, John, the position you were setting out um, that one should test theories and um, and run hypotheses to challenges and so forth. I wonder what you thought of that. Well, I think it was more that people who were attacking him were attacking science. 
Right. But that, so the, no, the, they were not, right. That, they were not making, you know, analytical judgments on what he may or may not have been incorrect on, you know, sure. they were throwing everything out. Sure. But it, I, for me, it goes too far to say that if you, if you attack me, you're attacking the entire discipline of, of my, of, I don't you know. think you'd have to give me a quote from him. I don't All think right. he ever did go that far. You know, one of the things I will say, John and Alex that I think was a very serious communications mistake that at least our government made, honestly, both in the Trump and the Biden administrations. And I, I do to some extent hold Dr. Fauci and others responsible for this is an excess of certitude. I would have loved to have seen Dr. Fauci come out much more forcefully than he did at the beginning to say, listen, science is a messy process. This is a brand new virus. By definition, we are going to be wrong and facts on the ground are going to change. However, in March of 2020, the best advice we can give you based on what we know right now today is mask up. I think that would have made it much easier to later say, here's why you don't need to mask up anymore. But there was, I, I get it. You want to make the population feel like their government knows what they're doing. But I think we were too certain at the beginning. Uh, I agree absolutely with your comment about how you frame things. And, you know, I've been saying the same thing and given a lot of interviews on the, you know, two year anniversary and so forth. Uh, you know, if they had gone out and created an infrastructure in which error was allowed and expect to be expected, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have gotten a lot of the resistance that you got. Yeah. Specifically on the mask issue, uh, they had reasons, some of which were data-driven, uh, why they felt masking at the beginning was not necessary, even though obviously that was a mistake. Uh, but more important is framing the whole message at the beginning. We are in a war, the fog of war. We're giving you the best advice we can possibly give you at this moment, but there's a reasonable chance some of it will change. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, and to that point, John, the 2018 afterward in your book, to me, eerily predicts many of the reactions of governmental and scientific leaders and ordinary citizens to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you did some great early op-eds at the beginning telling us what we should expect and making recommendations. So in hindsight, pretending for the sake of argument that we're past the COVID-19 pandemic, how did we all do collectively? What to quote Alex, lessons from history have we learned and not learned? Well, first, I've written five afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> including one that I'm not sure it's been released yet, but it's already dated. <laughs> uh, but one thing that was constant in all of them was the last couple of pages in the afterward, which is the part I think you're referring to. Uh, and, the, you know, I think this is, experiences confirmed what I was saying, the number one lesson from 1918, that is to tell the truth. Yeah. It, you don't, and pe people die because of it. And this time, 1918 was a little different. We, you know, every European country, not every, you know, Switzerland, Spain, and so forth, weren't at war. But uh, 
you know, we were at war. The government lied because they felt that uh, it would hurt morale to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. As a result, you know, they said this is ordinary influenza by another name. It's called Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet people were dying sometimes 24 hours after the first symptoms. And they were dying with horrific symptoms. Unlike the normal flu. And absolutely. And, you know, young people were dying. You know, people under 10, most vulnerable. Next peak of age 28 was a peak for deaths. Huge numbers of people were dying in that, those demographics. Mm-hmm. Studies of pregnant women, 21% to 71% case mortality. Wow. So it was, a, and people knew that they were being lied to. And what that did was create a kind of chaos and, of course, a lot of fear. Yeah. Uh, this time around was different. This time around, you got a, you know, I think a large majority of the population that believes Tony Fauci and should. But you have a minority and not a tiny minority that believes something entirely different. But they believe. So you've got two sets of beliefs. Right. Only one of them is true. Um but people were operating based on those belief systems. And, you know, again, the, you know, the truth saves lives in a pandemic. Another lesson from 1918, which has been confirmed this time around, is that so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions work. Uh, they work. Meaning masking you know, and distancing. Distance. Yeah, the social distancing, the masking, stuff like that they actually do save not just some lives, but a lot of lives. By the same token, as China is discovering, you can't do that stuff forever. Personally, I don't see how China can possibly contain this virus. If they do manage to contain it somehow in urban areas, they'll only do that by rolling closures, which is gonna screw up the supply chain because they'll be closing down factory towns one at a time. And then you have 600 million rural Chinese. How are you going to shut down those areas of the country? It can't be done. So I think, you know, you know, the virus is going to get out there in China. It is out there now. And I, I think things will go south there. Well, speaking, uh, speaking of China, John, and, uh, Hate to put you on the spot a little bit, but in one of the afterwards, you stated regarding the 2003 SARS epidemic that, and I'm quoting now, the world was put at risk by China, which initially lied and hid the disease. China's candor has improved significantly, close quote. So as we say in the Congress, would you like to revise and extend your remarks on this subject? Well, no, actually. China's candor has improved significantly. Well, that says a lot about where it was in 2003 then. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, during the, if you all remember bird flu, H5N1 and so forth, yeah. yes. uh, which is still out there and could still cause a very lethal pandemic that would dwarf uh, SARS-CoV-2. You know, China has been pretty cooperative. Uh, on those influenza viruses. And they had gotten a lot better 
uh, and you know, CDC had people in there. They helped uh, create surveillance systems, things like that. And China obviously has not performed well in terms of searching for the origins. But the reality is I would dispute those who think that China has, you know, I mean, let's, let's say, to, what would China have done? Do you think if they had released the genetic information 10 days earlier, it would have had any impact on the course of the pandemic? No, I, I don't think that's when people, that's the part that I don't think people get most upset about the situation in China. It's stymieing investigations as to the origin. Yeah, I agree with that. So it's extremely irritating. Right. But I don't think anybody with a brain thinks this was a uh, bioweapon. No, no, but no, sure. But and the- I, I know, and you know, whether it was a lab accident, right? All the evidence that I know of suggests and points pretty strongly towards the fact that it was a naturally occurring event. You know, it that uh, the only suggestion as to why it might be a lab accident is because they're hiding information, right. Well, John, no. John, also the fact that the lab was 12 kilometers from the wet mark. Well, you know, that, uh, that, that's not very compelling. But, you know, uh, you know, there are coincidences in the world. No, sure, sure. I, I, I didn't see it being about coincidence. And I, I, uh, you, of course, know, John, a great deal more about this than me, but that's never stopped me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did see... Uh, I, I did see qu- quite significant reporting from outlets that I that I trust, both in your country and in mine, that went some way to suggest some connection between experiments or research that was being undertaken in that laboratory and the and, and, and the resultant strains that we've seen. Yeah, there is an argument that has been made, obviously, uh, but the more research that has come out, the more it looks like a natural event. In fact, you know, Michael Warby, I was one of the leading signers of a, uh, you know, many signatories of scientists uh, who s- said the lab leak has to be at least looked at seriously. You know, he, he's done more work and he's convinced himself otherwise. I think if there's something to be faulting the Chinese for is those wet markets and not protecting the world's population from the wet market. Which were identified at least as far back as 2003 as a potential problem. Exactly. Exactly. Would you help our listeners, because not everyone's going to, would you help people to understand exactly what a wet market is? Well, they have all sorts of animals stacked in cages, defecating and urinating on each other. And, and, you know, they're butchered live. There's blood everywhere. It's a perfect place to allow a pathogen to jump species. Sounds absolutely horrible. So John, uh, what about this notion, and and you said a minute ago that the 10 day delay, or what let's even say it was 30 day delay in notifying the world, how much difference would it make? Do you buy this notion that they in part delayed that so they could hoard PPE? No, I think the local uh, politicians were afraid of the national politicians. Mm-hmm. They were covering their ass. So you're saying it, they 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 withheld information, but not by national policy. 
Well, there certainly was some national policy. Uh, you know, they, but initially, I mean, no, this is the same thing that happened in SARS, which has been looked at in the original SARS, mm-hmm. looked at in great detail. Right. Uh, and, you know, you know, I'm not an expert on what happened with China. I'm probably uh, wasting your time and your listeners. <laughs> I'm hey, we do that all going on, John. Waste our listeners. But the reality is, here, here's, here's what happened. The world was warned about this in January. What did it do for the next two months? Yeah. Suppose it had been warned two weeks earlier. Yeah. What would it have done? That's a fair point. Do you care to weigh in on grading the Trump versus Biden administration's response? Yeah, Trump deserves uh, credit for warp speed. It wasn't his idea, but he could have said no. So on that, I'd give him, it was pretty obvious. It would have been hard to say no, but he didn't, he didn't have to say yes. So I give him uh, a 7.8 on that decision. (laughs) And a uh, minus 10 on everything else. Yeah. You're like the East German judge from the Olympics back in the day. The other question I have for you related to this, John, is one of the best parts of your book to me was this discussion of in the late, I guess, 19th century, the difference between the way Americans viewed medical education and science in general and the way the Germans and the French and others in Europe viewed it. And at the time, obviously, they were way ahead of us. It was before, as you chronicle quite well, the founding of Johns Hopkins. And as you mentioned in the book, a lot of American medical schools, maybe all of them, didn't even require a college degree. So fast forward now a couple centuries. Uh, how are we doing in terms of scientific cooperation across the pond? And, and, and a great example would be, the Pfizer-BioNTech collaboration on the COVID-19 vaccine. Not that we should compare ourselves to 225 years ago, but is there more we should be doing globally to cooperate? Well, I think right now we're probably doing it. And Ashish Jha, who just took over as the chief coordinator for for COVID-19, has been a longtime advocate of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, he'd be pushing for even more. You can make an argument about transferring the intellectual property uh, from Moderna, and so, and you know, which was largely developed at NIH anyway, uh, to uh, the develop, developing world. But just doing that is not going to really help them make the vaccines. There's so much more right. involved. Uh, but I think basically. Right now, I think the Biden administration is is getting should get at least a if you're grading very hard a B minus mm-hmm. if grading easily and and maybe even an A certainly an A minus on worldwide cooperation. Uh, I think the one of the striking things that happened in this pandemic was the amount of interdisciplinary research. And I mean, every scientist in every field tried to get together and make some contribution. It was absolutely amazing. You know, I don't know that 
those things were turned out to be that productive, but the cross fertilization, I mean, that, that was really extraordinary. You know, physicists, yep. and I'm not talking about biophysicists, I'm talking about physicists, right. uh, you know, getting together with, with chemists and epidemiologists and trying to make some contribution. Well, yeah. So I was just going to say, John, wearing my hat as the executive director of UC Irvine Cybersecurity Institute, it, it is really like whatever's worse than pulling teeth, if you've seen the Marathon Man, to get a computer scientist and a physical scientist and an engineer to cooperate on anything. So I completely agree with that. The degree of multidisciplinary, multinational cooperation, it's almost like a giant informal Manhattan project. Yeah. And, you know, and that was boots on the ground level. Yeah. That was individual scientists just gathering people around them. And Yeah, exactly. Well, look, I, this has been fantastic. Your book is great. You're great. I appreciate you being on. Alex, do you have any other questions for John or John, anything you sure. want us to ask you? It's been fascinating listening to you and I'm grateful to you and indeed for the work that you have done. But I suppose my question do you feel that the public communication of science is something that has improved over this process, gotten worse? Do you think we're going to see more people want to be scientists as a result of, or be epidemiologists or uh, going into medicine as a result of what we've lived through? Great question. I think all of the above. Right. <laughs> okay. You no, know, uh, the single biggest failure of the Biden administration has been in messaging. Yep. Um, you know, they also could have taken Delta more seriously and had more tests, you know, so there are some uh, concrete steps where, or missteps. Um, but I think the biggest misstep was not coordinating their messaging. I think maybe they wanted the scientists, you know, leave the scientists alone, don't intervene, but you got to coordinate what you're saying. Uh and, you know, so that that hasn't helped. But I certainly think people have been inspired uh, both by what healthcare workers have done and what the scientific community has done. And, and then you've got the crazies out there, like someone in my family who's told me that I am I sold out to the global elite and that. <laughs> that Gates and the global elite are trying to depopulate the world using the vaccine to kill everybody. Now, I was extremely insulted by being told I had sold out to the global elite. I would like to have thought I was part of it. <laughs> you were already in it. That's, that's, out, that's outrageous. As Seinfeld Maybe said, I'm out. I was never in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not financially, but, you know, still, I would, you know, uh, <laughs> But I, I wrote her back and said, well, why would they try to depopulate the world? Because that would that would cut down on the number of children whose blood they could drink. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but let's let's bear in mind that that's the world population has been remorselessly going up throughout this period of time. I do not dispute, of course, how appalling and horrible it must be uh, to have long COVID or to have relatives who've, who've suffered very badly from COVID or heaven forbid died. But the mortality rate from COVID has not put a dent in the remorseless population growth in our in our world. So that's one for the 
birds even on the even on the merits because well, it hasn't it hasn't diminished world population really at all well and also you're talking about logic come on <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> well and, and also i'm going to beat this drum i seem to be beating every week now which is i wish the same people that are critiquing you and the western world on something like that would recognize and speak out about the literal depopulation that's going on as we speak in ukraine yes but they it yes. never seems to be balanced it's always against the country they live in but that's a that's a question for another day so john thank you so much uh really thank you, appreciate Joe. it everybody should buy john's book i will tell you it's a little bit delayed on amazon because it's so popular but look in our show notes and get it and john Thank you so much. And uh, the, a blessing and the curse of being on this show is we'll probably have you back again if you're willing. Great guest. Okay, yeah. It was a lot of fun. And uh, maybe one day we will meet in person. I, I hope so. At the, at the John Snow. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers. Cheers.